You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. Hello again, everyone. In this episode, we continue a discussion we began in the last episode about the hurdles of mystery and free will, which Christian universalists must find a way to get over. To summarize these two problems quickly, we could say that the first hurdle of mystery revolves around how, from our limited vantage point, Christian universalists could possibly see the end of things clearly enough to declare a confident Christian conviction that all will finally be saved. And then with regard to the second problem, we could say that the problem of free will revolves around how God could ever be able to secure the final salvation of everyone without negating our free will along the way and thereby forcing us into an eternal relationship we may not truly desire. Let's start with the hurdle of mystery. How is it that Christian universalists think we can see through all of God's deep mysteries to make some kind of confident declaration that all will be saved in the end? The first thing I might say is that I believe all will finally be saved because I believe I can see in Scripture an indication that it is God's final intent to be all in all. In 1 Corinthians 15.28 we read, When all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to the One who put all things in subjection under Him, so that God may be all in all. And I find other language in Scripture which seems to support this. Romans 11.32 says, God has imprisoned all in disobedience so that he may be merciful to all. Now we have a God who intends to be merciful to all in order to be all in all. In Ephesians 1.9-10, we read about the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to gather up all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So now we have a God who is gathering up all things in him, who is being merciful to all, and who will be all in all. According to Philippians 2, 9-11, through there is a coming time when at the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of the Father. When we examine the Greek word exomologestai, Behind the English word confess in this passage, we find that the confession of Jesus as Lord being talked about here is a confession which is gladly made with rejoicing. If we add this in, we can now say that in Scripture we can find a picture of a God who is gathering up all things in Him, who is being merciful to all, who will be all in all, and about how all will eventually make glad confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so I believe in the ultimate salvation of all because I believe I can find indication in these scriptures and in others that the ultimate goal of God is to be fully present in each of our lives so that we might become fully illuminated and exist in complete harmony with others, God, and all of creation. I think I can see indications in the scriptures that the ultimate purpose of God is not for us to be merely forgiven but to become fully aware, fully alive, and fully integrated into the perfect love of Father, Son, and Spirit so that God will finally be all in all. And if God is sovereign, which I believe I can also find scriptural support for as well, then there is no power, including our own delusional rebellions, that can ultimately stop God from achieving God's ultimate good purpose to finally be all in all. 
So, when it comes to the problem of mystery, from the perspective of the inclusive Christian universalist approach, the primary mystery is this. How is it that if God wants to finally be all in all, that God ultimately doesn't get what God wants? Or, to put it another way, why would a God who knows the end from the beginning make a creation in which God does not get what God wants in the end? That God knows the end from the beginning is stated in Isaiah 46.10, and in light of God's foreknowledge, then it seems to me that God would know from the beginning of creation whether or not the end of creation would turn out satisfactorily. And if it wasn't going to turn out satisfactorily, then why in the world would God go ahead with it? So, the primary mystery the Christian Universalist grapples with is this. How could it be that the sovereign God ends up failing to achieve what God wants, especially when God apparently knows from the beginning how everything will turn out in the end? The sovereignty of God as a concept means that God knows the end from the beginning and is not controlled or regulated by outside forces, which means that the outcome of all things will inevitably be what God intended them to be from the beginning. And this means that we as individuals and we as the human race are not ultimately in control. We are along for the ride, so to speak, and wherever that ride is going is not up to us. I really like the way Jen Hatmaker puts all this together in her inventively titled book, of mess and moxie. The following excerpt from her book is a good example of what can happen when a sincere Christian thoughtfully works through the bold implications of God's sovereignty. Hatmaker writes, As for those sovereignty questions, I am sorry to say I don't exactly understand how it all works this side of heaven. I'm just not sure. I can tell you what I make of the end game. I believe God's sovereignty ultimately means he will have it all back. Every wrong will eventually be right. Every injustice will be overturned. Every tear will be dried. All the torn pieces will be rewoven. Every prayer utilized to bring us another inch closer to Jesus and more in partnership with his love. This earth and realm will be repossessed into glory, and God will have the world he dreamed of. Some redemption will be in our lifetime, and all of it will be in eternity. Sovereignty means none of this is too far gone. Nothing is outside God's ultimate plans. No matter how off the rails this world appears, God's eye has always been on the tiny, fragile sparrow. He has never lost count of an injustice, a life, a human being. No nameless death was ever nameless. No senseless abuse was ever missed. He may have set the whole earth in motion with its mix of humanity and spiritual realms and principalities, but only one is on the throne where he has always been and will always be. We are still holding a pile of tattered threads. It just means the story is not over yet. We can trust God entirely until heaven when he vanquishes all tears, all death, all mourning, all crying, all pain. And he reigns, and he won, and he fixed it all, and he saved it all, and he restored it all. I think that's extremely well put. And it's a good example of the logic that if the end game for God is for everyone to be healed and restored, then there is a strong logical case to be made that God has made a creation which will finally deliver God's intended purposes for it. When it comes to the academic world of highly trained PhDs, it's David Bentley Hart who has made the most forceful arguments along these lines. David Bentley Hart argues with devastating scholarly precision that Christian universalism is the only logical possible approach to the Christian faith in which God may be rightly said to be good. He puts his views forth bluntly in his unavoidable book, That All Shall Be Saved, 
where he declares himself not to be a seeker tentatively and timidly groping his way towards some anxious, uncertain, fragile hope. Hart then elaborates on his absolute convictions about this in the following quote I want to share with you. But before I share this quote with you, I need to tell you about a theological word that appears in the quote, and that theological word is apocatastasis. Apocatastasis is a Greek word, which means restoration, and this Greek word appears in the New Testament in Acts 3.21, where it is said that Jesus must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything. And so, in the discussion about eternal destinies, the word apocatastasis has become a term associated with a final universal restoration of creation, which would include the final restoration of all fallen humanity. So now, back to David Bentley Hart in his book, That All Shall Be Saved, where he doesn't back away from academic language and theological terms. He also uses his full understanding of the English language, and he either presumes the reader has a working knowledge of theological terms, or he expects his readers to look them up. Reading through David Bentley Hart's That All Shall Be Saved is an education in itself on many levels. But now to the quote I want to share, which uses the Greek word apokatastasis, which means restoration. Okay, so here's the quote. Hart states that, unlike, say, the great Hans Urs von Balthasar, 1905, through 1988, I would not think it worth the trouble to argue, as he does, that, given the paradoxes and seemingly irreconcilable pronouncements of scriptures on the final state of all things, Christians may be allowed to dare to hope for the salvation of all. In fact, I have very small patience for this kind of hopeful universalism, as it is often called. As far as I am concerned, Anyone who hopes for the universal reconciliation of creatures with God must already believe that this would be the best possible ending to the Christian story. And such a person has then no excuse for imagining that God could bring any but the best possible ending to pass without thereby being in some sense a failed creator. The position I want to attempt to argue, therefore, to see how well it holds together, is far more extreme, to wit, that if Christianity is in any way true, Christians dare not doubt the salvation of all, and that any understanding of what God accomplished in Christ that does not include the assurance of a final apocatastasis in which all things created are redeemed and joined to God is ultimately entirely incoherent and unworthy of rational faith. Now, that's a strong statement, but what helps me to understand it is that scholars don't just know about things. They make the strongest arguments they can about the best way the things that they know should be put together. So when I read an academic like David Bentley Hart, I expect him to bring his strongest possible argument, because that's what academics do. But what I really appreciate about Hart is his willingness to follow the logic where it leads. And for Hart, it leads to the conclusion that any understanding of what God accomplished in Christ that does not include the assurance of a final apocatastasis or a final restoration in which all things created are redeemed and joined to God is ultimately entirely incoherent and unworthy of rational faith. The mystery Hart deals with revolves around how it could be logically possible for creation to have anything other than a purely good end if it originates from a purely good beginning in a purely good God who is also all-powerful and all-knowing. As Hart sees it, the only logical conclusion of such a creation would be one in which the goodness of God finally permeates everyone and God is all in all. You might say that David Bentley Hart is blunt, 
but I find it hard to quarrel with his logic on these matters. So I would say, if I can put it this way, mystery is in the eye of the beholder. One person sees the impenetrable mystery as being, how could we ever know if all will be saved? While others, such as myself and David Bentley Hart, have come to see that the impenetrable mystery is how anything other than the ultimate salvation of all could possibly come to pass if God truly is all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-good. But this leads us to another major concern, and that has to do with free will. How could it be that God could finally save all without violating human freedom? Can God force us to be in a relationship with God that we don't want? At a certain level, doesn't a loving relationship need to be freely chosen? This is a major concern that hopeful inclusivists bring up, and it's an understandable one. But here's an idea that's helped me, and that's to think about human freedom as the freedom which comes when we are being who we truly are. In other words, a human is truly free only when that human is fully aware of who they are at their deepest level and then acting in full awareness and accord with that identity. David Bentley Hart again makes a helpful distinction along these lines when he argues for calling this way of thinking about freedom a higher understanding of human freedom. Hart puts it this way, A higher understanding of human freedom is inseparable from a definition of human nature. To be free is to be able to flourish as the kind of being one is, and so to attain the ontological good toward which one's nature is oriented. Freedom is the unhindered realization of a complex nature in its proper end, natural and supernatural, and this is consummate liberty and happiness. The will that chooses poorly, then, through ignorance, maleficence, or corrupt desire, has not thereby become freer, but has further enslaved itself to those forces that prevent it from achieving its full expression. To simplify Hart's language a bit, we cannot think about being free apart from thinking about who we really and truly are. God grants us the ability to act in defiance of our true nature as God's children. However, each step we take in the wrong direction makes us less free and sets in motion the negative consequences which inevitably follow. Another tremendous scholar on the history of Christian universalism is Alaria Ramelli, and she makes a similar argument as does Hart. She writes that, In the end, there will be no more evil, and this is not incompatible with human freedom. Indeed, the eventual return of all to God will not cancel out human freedom of will, because human orientation towards God is part and parcel of human creatural nature. As Romelli sees it, since children of God are inherently oriented towards God, once we have come to our senses, it would be a violation of our free will to keep us from returning home to God. Once we are truly free, we desire nothing more than the homecoming for which we have been created. I think that what David Bentley Hart and Aloria Rumelli are both pointing out is that our freedom is connected with our identity. We are only truly free when we are being who we truly are, sons and daughters of the perfectly good and loving God. The farther off track we get from our identity, the less free we become and the more we become slaves of sin. Folks in the recovery community talk about how an addiction can bring over a person a powerful delusion that their addictive behavior is actually in their best interest when it's actually not. In a similar kind of way, when someone is under a powerful delusion about who they are and about who God is, then they are not acting with a free will in the sense that their will is bound by a powerful delusion. However, 
When our wills are freed of delusion and when we see ourselves as who we truly are and we see God as God truly is, then it will be no violation of our free will to come home. As a matter of fact, when we truly come to our senses and we finally come home to God, this will not be a denial of our free will. It will be nothing less than the fulfillment of our free will. But there is still another concern to address along these lines, and that's the concern that relationships have to be chosen in order to be authentic. And so wouldn't our relationship with God have to be chosen by God and by us in order to be authentic and healthy? What's helped me to think about this are a couple of things. Ironically, the first of those things is the United States Declaration of Independence. And that's because I haven't met anyone born in the United States of America who considers it a burden to live in a country where our birthright, which we did not choose, includes certain rights, among those being life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Our founders believed these rights were endowed by God to all and that all were created equal. Since these rights were gifted by God to all people, they could not be revoked by kings or governments. Because these universal human rights came directly from God, our founders considered them to be unalienable. In a similar way, I've come to believe that it is the unalienable right and privilege of each human being to be a child of God. And although this core identity may be marred, tarnished, and soiled, it cannot be revoked, which means that the goodness of God, our Heavenly Father, has been bestowed upon us at the deepest level of our beings. In the same way that even though I did not have a choice about being born in the United States and having certain unalienable rights, I'm still very grateful for these rights. And in the same way that I did not have a choice about being God's child, I'm still very grateful for my identity as the child of a perfectly good God. I might not be able to revoke my essence as God's child, but instead of thinking of this as a limitation of my free will which damages my relationship with God, I now see my God-given, Godward spiritual orientation as my unalienable birthright, which is my deepest right and privilege to express. And this leads me to the next thought, which has helped me to see that we can have an authentic relationship with God, even if we don't get to choose it. And this has to do with the relationship between parents and children. Children don't get to choose their parents, but that doesn't negate the possibility of authentic relationship between parent and child. And when it comes to my own life, what I find comforting about all of this is that God, my perfect parent, will not fail to rescue me even if I lose my mind somehow and come under a powerful delusion that God is in fact my enemy. If I was to lose my mind and begin to believe it was in my best interest to go away from God and goodness and love forever, I certainly hope that God would not let me proceed to my doom out of some regard for my personal freedom when I was clearly out of my mind. And so I would say that one of the conditions for a free decision is that a person would be in full possession of their faculties and in full possession of the truth about their situation. And if God really is love, and if we really are children of love, destined to be perfected in love, then once that is all clear to us, Our salvation will not involve negating our free will. Our salvation will then become the fulfillment of our free will. Also, I think the modern notion of free will is a little overblown if we define free will as the ability to choose to do absolutely anything we want. If we could truly do anything we wanted and never feel that we were in violation of our inner identity, then our wills would not be pointed in any particular direction 
and that would render all of our actions random and meaningless. To put it more positively, as children of God, we have a conscience, and we are really only truly free when we are acting in accord with it. When we act out of accord with our true self, then we start to accrue the negative consequences of that, and we become less and less free. Thomas Talbot, another great Christian scholar and philosopher I am happy to recommend, does a really good job of fleshing this out in his book, The Inescapable Love of God. In that book, he describes our situation this way, writing, Though our present choices cannot alter our final destiny, they most assuredly can affect our chances for happiness in the present and in the near-term future. And though our glorious inheritance cannot elude us forever, it most assuredly can elude us for a lifetime, or perhaps even several lifetimes. So our choices do have very real consequences in our lives. Indeed, these consequences are one of the means by which God will transform us in the end and thereby secure our final destiny. When we finally weary of our own selfishness, petty jealousies, and lust for power, when we learn at last, perhaps through bitter experience, that these lead only to ruin and cannot bring enduring happiness, that nothing short of union with God and reconciliation with others will satisfy our own deepest yearnings, when we discover that the hound of heaven has finally closed off every alternative to such a union, we shall then, each of us, finally embrace the destiny that is ours. As Talbot observes, it may take God a long time to finally defeat all of our delusions of will. But God is far more patient and intelligent than we are. God, our perfect heavenly parent, is like a grandmaster in chess when it comes to playing against our deluded wills. Our deluded wills are allowed to make any move they wish, but God is also able to make the appropriate countermove. God will gradually and persistently hem in and finally defeat our deluded wills for our own good. The defeat of our deluded will results in the liberation of our true one. Once our true will comes forward, we will find, perhaps to our great surprise, that we want nothing more than to come home. We think we know what we want, yet over the course of time, or over however much time it takes, we will begin to understand we only think we know what we want. And God, the persistent Grandmaster, is always working in the background, laying the groundwork for the moment when our eyes are finally opened to the truth. God, to quote Talbot again, is like the grandmaster in chess, who, though exercising no direct causal control over the moves of a novice, is nonetheless able to checkmate the novice in the end. Given an adequate analysis of freedom, moreover, we can even see why, in the very nature of the case, God cannot fail to win in the end. And so I think we can conclude this episode by saying that God grants each of us a huge measure of liberty. In the course of our lifetimes, we are all humbled by the reality of our inability to manage our liberty without getting off track. Some of us fall more seriously off track than others, but all of us fall off track to some degree. Some of us fall so far off track we commit tremendous evil and even lose the desire for the things of God. We bring great hardship on ourselves and on others. It may seem that some of us have become so ruined that even God can't restore us back to sanity. But the God for whom all things are possible can finally free us from all the lies and evil which blind us and which bind us. Once we are finally liberated, we will be truly free, and then our free wills will want nothing more than to come back home. And all of this is why I think we can get over the hurdles of mystery and free will and see our way through to a vision of a God who intends to be all in all, 
and who will be able to accomplish all of this through a loving relationship without violating our free will along the way. But we are not yet through with all of the hurdles we must address. In the next episode, we turn to a big hurdle Christian Universalists must get across. I call this hurdle the hurdle of heresy because in some Christian circles, Christian Universalism isn't just thought of as a minority option for belief, but as a heresy that goes against Christian belief. We will address the hurdle of heresy in the next episode, and I think we have more than enough evidence to clear this hurdle with plenty of room. But the charge of heresy, as unfair as I think it is, is still something that persists with regard to Christian Universalism, so we must address it. Until then, I hope you will continue to join me in pursuing a grace that saves all. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.